The following podcast is presented by Ensign Services, Inc., a company engaged in the business of providing contracted for administrative and back office type support services to post-acute healthcare clients. Ensign Services provides accounting, human resources, compliance, legal, risk management, information technology, training, construction support, and other such miscellaneous services to its clients. These contracted for services are available to be utilized at the sole discretion of its clients. References within the podcast to the company and its activities, as well as the use of the terms we, us, its, our, and similar terms used during the discussion are not meant to imply that Ensign Services, Inc. or the Ensign Group, Inc. has any direct operational control, supervision, or direction of the independently operated post-acute healthcare entities. Okay, good. It's really good to be back with another podcast. I'm going to be switching my roles uh, today as as being the interviewer instead of the interviewee. And I'm here with Spencer. Spencer, good to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Clay. Uh, We're actually going to be talking about, in fact, have you done a podcast with us since the last Multipliers podcast? We had a chance to go over the 20 20 mile march. The 20 mile march. That's right. That's right. And I love that one. I can't believe I, I didn't think of that one. Gosh, it was a couple of years ago, I think, that we did the last Multipliers podcast. It was one of the first ones. We're going to be delving into that again today, but this time we're going to get a little bit more specifically into the principles of the book. So I want to start with this sort of uh, trite phrase that you've heard and you've probably said, and it's this. I did the best that I could. Right? We've we've heard that phrase before. We've said that phrase before. I... I don't know that I ever have done the best that I could, right? If I if I take that statement quite literally, I don't know that it's ever been true. So so here are two truths that sort of crash up against each other that that lead us into this book. One, we all have partners and employees that possess way more capability talent, creativity that than we're getting out of them, right? We're all capable of more. If, if I've never done the best that I could, then I've clearly not performed at 100% capacity. And, and so there's, you know, latent talent throughout our organizations. And so here's point number two. There's an ever-increasing pressure to produce more from less. So no matter what industry you're in, right, it, it, we, we just, we feel paradoxically overworked, but we're also underutilized. And, and that is a paradox. So the question of multipliers is how do we get the best out of people rather than unintentionally diminishing them? And and for these next couple of podcasts, we want to attack this question. And, and largely, we're going to discuss the things that uh, we unintentionally do with our hearts in the right place, um, but you know, that are actually stifling the productivity of of others. So let me give you just one quick example before we jump into this, Spencer. This is a Stanford University study that I thought was really interesting. They say children given a series of progressively harder puzzles. So each puzzle is getting more and more difficult. And those children that are praised for their intelligence tend to stagnate for fear of reaching the limit of their intelligence. Children given the same series of puzzles, but then praised for their hard work, actually increase their ability to reason and solve problems. So in in both of them seem like good things to do, praising for intelligence and praising for hard work. But in one case, it sounds like we're being an accidental diminisher. So in our discussions, we want to get into where we're we're failing to be multipliers and how we might unintentionally be stifling genius that is all around us. And and really, we could be multiplying our intelligence and capability without requiring a bigger investment. So, Spencer, start us off. Just let's talk in general about the difference between a multiplier and a diminisher. Okay, yeah. I, I think the first thing is... Multipliers and diminishers are usually the same person. We both live in meaning sometimes we are yeah, a I multiplier, think, sometimes we're a diminisher. I think if we think we're a multiplier all the time, we're, you know, delusional. And mm. um sometimes we maybe tend to be diminishers more than we want to be. But I think this is something that's we're capable of being uh multipliers more than we are, and we're also capable if we're not careful of being diminishers. That's why um, you know, I just read this book again as I was preparing for this, and uh it is a hard read. It's a painful read because as you go in there, you realize all of these things you're doing when you're working so hard and your heart is in the right spot and you're trying to create, you know, success for the company and for those around you. A lot of times we just don't do it effectively. 
we do it in a way that doesn't create the maximum results and doesn't, to your, your point as you opened up, doesn't really get the best out of people. In fact, I don't know anybody, maybe some of our listeners have, I don't know anybody that read the book and went away thinking, man, I'm a multiplier. <laughs> right? I mean, wasn't your response? It seems like everybody I've talked to came to the real harsh realization of what diminishers. That's that the are. that's the challenge with the book, but it's also the power of the book. You leave and yeah. there's like a cloud over you. And then you have to shake the fog off and say, okay, what steps can I take? And I, I hope today by by going through some examples and talking through it, we can help people realize, number one, we all have the problem of being diminishers sometimes. Yeah. There's also a way we can get out of it. And if we do get out of it, the impact can be enormous. Like you said, um, our industry today, our facilities, I've, I've been in uh, San Diego facilities and LA facilities this week. And you know, there's a shortage of nurses. The nursing staffing crisis that's been with us for decades is ever more real. Yeah. You know, the, the amount of work that has to be done, the acuity with COVID and with what, you know, hospitals are now discharging to our facilities um, what the communities need us to take care of. There's more work than, than ever that needs to be done. There's more acuity that needs to be fixed. There's uh, Our staff is more able to find a job anywhere if we're not multiplying them. And, you know, it all adds up to a pretty heavy um, equation until you realize um, it doesn't just have to be addition, you know, adding more hours, adding more efforts. If we can figure out how to multiply, I think we can figure out how to get out of this and continue to build what we've built for the last 21 Which years. Which isn't, I mean, that can scare people, right? Because they might be thinking, okay, well, they're just asking to multiply me, meaning I need to work harder and I need to work longer hours. And that's not it, right? It's, it's, there's a, there's a difference in mentality between a multiplier and a diminisher, right? How they look at people. Absolutely. It all starts with kind of how you see people. Uh, multipliers see people as, I think it's... Uh, on, on one hand, you see people as not just what they are today, but what they can become. You see, as, as you mentioned, latent or kind of dormant talent inside of people, abilities that maybe they don't even know they have yet. And the diminisher, I think you see people as objects. You know, this is a square peg. I've got a square hole. You know, if I hit on it enough, it'll it'll be in that hole and I can accomplish that and move on to the next challenge. Um, I, I also think there's another piece to it too. Um, it's not just about seeing other people differently. It's also about seeing yourself differently. Instead of always focusing on how others' actions, others' words, others' decisions affect you as a person, you as a leader, we have to flip the narrative to be truly multipliers. Instead of thinking about, oh, this person, you know, did this and it's, it's causing me to have to, you know, work harder or this person can't do this and now I have to compensate for them. Really see how we are impacting those around us because um, that's one of the core principles of this book is Look, in, look internally as a leader and see, are you diminishing people or are you multiplying them? Are the things we're saying, the things we're doing, the way we're thinking, helping people be their very best, or are we accidentally causing them to be less than they should be? And so I think understanding that um, it, it starts with us is empowering too, though, because if we can change little subtle things about ourselves and help other people love their jobs and be more successful, there's a huge amount of you know power in that. And then just the second thing I think the multiplier is all about is, all about is this idea that um, sometimes being efficient in the short run isn't effective in the long run. And it's causing us as leaders to, to rethink how we approach people and challenges and even, you know, the buildings and companies that we're, we're trying to lead in a way where we can maximize long-term outcomes through helping people be their very best instead of accomplishing the task in front of us, maybe at the expense of future so success. So meaning that quick solution, maybe an example of that is, is is leading by command, right? And telling people, hey, just get this done, just do it. And and they do it and they follow orders. But, but in that way, you're not multiplying yourself. They're just doing your bidding, right? It seems like it seems like it's almost a mentality shift that a multiplier feels like there is genius all around me. People can make great decisions even without me, whereas a diminisher feels like this job's not going to get done without me. I'm needed. And and both of them are absolutely right because yeah. they're both self-fulfilling prophecies a little bit. Yeah. You know, your favorite uh movie that you and I talk about a lot. I know it's it's up there with the blockbuster hits, but it's the short called Green and Clean. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that's where all of life's answers are that's, found. That's right. But think about that. You know, the dad in that video is the Stephen Covey video. Yeah. He is all about helping teach his, um, you know, son, maybe not even teach, but inspire his son that he can do hard things like keep the yard green and clean it up. 
And I'll bet that son still has a good looking yard, you know, 40 years after that story happened. Whereas, you know, the, the easy thing to do is just clean up the yard or grab the son and say, look, you're not having, you're not, you're not playing with your friends until you pick up that trash. Yeah. But, you know, St- Stephen Covey was a multiplayer in that sense. And there's probably and hundreds of green yards. it took a lot of effort on the front end, as you're pointing out, to, to, to really give them the chance to live that. And, uh, and he saw that it was in his son. I think, I think that's something that is really interesting to me. I think a lot of us become uh, what I what I call tortured geniuses, where uh, we're victims to our teams. Oh, if everybody cared as much as I did, if everybody would just work as hard as I did, if everybody, and, and because we think they can't do it without us, our very attitude is sort of a an, a diminishing attitude. When right. that in that same example, what multipliers would say is, you have complete control of all of those things that are torturing you. You know, you can help the people you have become better. And if they're not the right people and they don't want to change, you owe it to the other people to help, you know, get the right people on your bus, so to speak. And then as you have the right people, the way you lead them or multiply them can really resolve all those problems that make you the tortured genius if you're not trying to be a multiplier. Yeah. Yeah, I think the I think the first sign of of my diminishing traits was was you know in the book Liz Weissman points out that a, a a multiplier is naturally a good listener because when you believe there is so much genius all around you you hunger to soak up as much of that genius as you can and i think okay i'm a lot more of a talker and and i fail in my listening skills all the time in fact sometimes i listen in preparation to speak next right and that's a very diminishing characteristic because it's just, okay, wait, bide your time, and then spout off your genius. And that doesn't really give people a chance to exercise the genius that's in them. And, and uh, again, one, one, of the, one of the painful uh, digs in, into, into my life as I, as I was reading this book. So, so let's jump into, um, you know, there's different categories in the book. And, and one of it is they differentiate an empire builder, which is a diminisher, right? She calls it an empire builder. Um, versus a talent magnet, which is a multiplier. Can can we get into that at all? Yeah, I think it starts with, the chapter starts with the quote from Woodrow Wilson, who said, I not only use all the brains that I have, but all that I can borrow. I think he, he kind of gets it right there. You know, he, to do something like being president of the United States, I imagine he needed a lot more than he possibly had in his own brain. And, you know, his vision at least was to borrow and get the best out of everybody else. So really, there's four principles that um, in this chapter, and it's a great chapter. The first one is, it says multipliers look for talent everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that seems so simple, but I think it's, uh, it's a lot harder than we maybe initially think it is. Because, you know, instead of being focused on ourselves and what do we have to offer and how can we show how good we are, this is really an outward looking mentality that we have to, yeah. you know, we have to gain. You have to not only you know, look for the type of genius that maybe you naturally recognize in people, but it also says you have to look for all types of genius. And this is the idea of, you know, things that you haven't even thought of as genius. We need to start asking more questions of ourselves and we opening our eyes and looking for, you know, people that are good at things that we don't even know to recognize. Do you know, there's a, there's a cartoon I have in one of my presentations and it's a bunch of animals lined up. You know, there's a giraffe and a monkey and a, and a goldfish and a bull and, and all these different animals. And the, the person talking says, okay, now for your final exam of being an animal, uh, we want to see who can climb this tree the best. Right. <laughs> and so obviously the goldfish is going to look like a moron and the, the elephant is probably going to look like a moron. But if we're gauging genius in just one particular way, then obviously we're, we're not uh, seeing the, the inherent genius in, in each of these different animals. And I think that's sort of how we judge each other. Somebody's yeah, not a, good at speaking or somebody's not good at, uh, you know, doing, leading a meeting or something like that. What is their real genius? So then we, you know, we, we maybe pigeonhole people or categorize them in a way where we're not getting their, you know, their maximum impact. And you're, you're, I think it was um, Roy, our, uh, a member of our board at one of our Ensign meetings a long time ago, made a comment that I wrote down in my book of multipliers. It was, it was something to the effect of no one person can get to the moon. Yeah. 
And I think that's what you're saying too, right? Yeah. yeah. And, but it's, it's totally right. Yeah. You know, um, somebody knows how to launch us. Somebody knows how to get us out of orbit. Somebody know, you know, the lunar landing. I mean, all these different things. No one person can get us to the moon. And it was the combination of probably geniuses in each of those things that got us to the moon. And there's probably a lesson in, you know, we have to get to our own moons within our skilled nursing industry right now. We've got equal challenges to overcome. And uh, same principle applies, absolutely. So so how do you, all right, so we've talked about, they, they look for talent everywhere. Uh, they're really good at finding people's native genius, um, you know, what they do naturally, what they would do if nobody was paying them. Um, well, let's flesh that out a okay. little bit more because that's the second one. I think, okay. you know, once you have the paradigm where you're looking for talent everywhere, mm -hmm. uh, your eyes are open, That that's only part of it. Now you got to find it. And, uh, and you know, like you said, you're looking for what people do naturally, looking for, and, and you can see this. Let me give an example of this from maybe the real world in um, a market that I had a chance to be involved in recently. So we had a, our resource calls. We were firing up our resource calls with the resource team, trying to coordinate, trying to keep everyone on the same page. And um, they were okay, but um, I asked for feedback, or maybe I didn't even ask. I should have asked. <laughs> it was given but to you. But feedback was given. <laughs> and the feedback was basically, you know what? These calls are fine, but they're kind of a waste. Hmm. And I, you know, once you pick yourself up, up off the floor and say, okay, you know, okay, why? Thank you for your yeah, feedback. Thanks for your feedback. <laughs> you know, the person said, and she was right. She said, look, we have these calls and we really don't follow up. And then the next week we have another call and you know, I don't know if we're really making any traction of any of this, these things. And after having three or four of these calls without traction, I feel like they're a waste. And um, she was right to a certain extent. So I think, you know, taking that example, there's a few natural responses to that. The first one is, you know, I'm the leader. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, no one Who asked you your opinion. You, are? you right? don't know how hard I'm working. Right. Yeah. I've got other things. jobs too, other than right. leading your call. You know, if you, you think you can do better, why don't you try, you know, all those things that we get defensive on. And <laughs> unfortunately I have a, you know, I have that same you know, weakness of sometimes getting defensive. I guess the second thing you could do, so that would be a bad response. An okay response would be to humbly say, you know what, you're right. I'll try and do a better job with follow-up and then, you know, struggle and try and think about how could I do better with follow-up because, you know, the criticism was fair. And that would have been better. But as I was thinking about this in the context of, uh, of multipliers, probably the third option would be what a multiplier would do. The multiplier would stop and, you know, it would ask the group and look at the group himself and then ask the group, like, who on this call is really good at organizing action items? Who's really good at recognizing sequential steps that can be taken to move these ideas, you know, down the court? And, uh, and then ask the people, you know, in, in the case of this resource call, it's a real example. There were two people who had actually made the suggestion. We got to have better follow-up. This is driving me nuts. They also happen to be the people who have the native genius of taking great notes and turning it into action. But, but I found sometimes, Spencer, they don't even realize that that's native genius. And you need to highlight. A, a multiplier is really good at saying, it seems like you are really good at this. And, and you know, I've had people say things like that to me. And I thought, oh, I didn't even think that was a talent. Yeah, because we don't necessarily think of as you're listing your talents, you don't say action item taking. Yeah. You know, that's I'm not really on your resume usually. Yeah. But that was a it's a native thing. It's like a natural thing for some people. And I can tell you the there were two people who uh, kind of took that assignment. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to think about it again. They created a spreadsheet. They yeah. every day would get on the call early. They'd have it pulled up. You know, all we had to do was give them time to talk about follow-up. They went through it. They checked it off. They made sure after each discussion, we had action items. And one of them was the backup when the other one couldn't get on the call. Yeah. The other one had that same genius. I can tell you it transformed our resource calls into actual motors for um, accomplishing results. So you, so you, you're looking for talent wherever you could find it. And then when you find it, you're shining a light on that talent. You're highlighting it for that person and for everybody else. Right. I think both of those things are important in being a multiplier, that, that you're shining a light on it for, for both groups. And then and then you took that next step of, of utilizing people at their fullest. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I can't say that necessarily I did it, but um, the fact is we needed help and I didn't have mm -hmm. the time to. So I was an accidental multiplier in this case because <laughs> I had to be right. I just couldn't do it. I could either get defensive or I could just ask for help. And thankfully, this person had the genius and was willing to help. Another example in a, in a cluster I was involved in recently was there was a new ED 
And you know, bringing on an ED, that cluster leader, uh, she's a newer cluster leader and she takes a ton of ownership for her cluster. And she had come up with this extensive orientation for the new ED. Mm-hmm. And her name was next to almost every single thing. And she was overwhelmed because her building was struggling. And as you can imagine, cluster leaders- felt like it was her job because of the title. The title, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to orient this person, even though I have one year of experience myself. Yeah. And uh, I've got a million things going on. And then she was able to actually, this uh, was something she did on her own. She she stepped back and she slowed down, which I think is oftentimes the case. Sometimes you have to slow down to go fast is what people say sometimes. And with multiplying, it's the case. She slowed down and she, you know, maybe a question was asked of her and she started thinking about it differently. She realized there were four other people in her cluster who had the elements that were needed to really onboard this person. And then there was a resource team that were just waiting to be asked to help with this onboarding. And when she did that, her job went from doing everything to, you know, setting a stage and organizing the process. And she had a passionate person who's way better at financial management than she is come in and teach the key factor to this new leader. And not only did that person teach better, when that new administrator needed something, he wasn't calling a, a cluster leader that was overwhelmed. He was calling, you know, the cluster partner who was really good at this. And the cluster partner who's really good at it didn't mind getting the call because that cluster partner loves key factors. Yeah. It's that person's, you know, natural genius. That person does it well. And so it went, you know, with different um, aspects of the role of ED. And I think the credit to that cluster leader was number one, she was hum- uh, she was organized enough to at least lay out an orientation. Mm-hmm. Second of all, she was humble enough to slow down and stop and recognize genius in her partners who didn't have the cluster leader title. And because of that, um, multiplication happened. A much better orientation occurred. Yeah. You didn't even say who it was, but good job, Stephanie. Uh, I, right? I got it right? Yeah, that's okay. We can name people in the podcast. Uh, it, it's 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 interesting because it's sort of the double-edged sword of, of, of the statement of leading by example. And leaders feel like, well, I've got to be, I, I can't not be willing to do anything that, that, you know, that I'm asking somebody else to do, right? I, I don't know if I did all the negatives in there correctly, but, but I need to be willing to do everything. And so sometimes we burn ourselves out as leaders in the name of leadership, in the name of servant leadership. But what we are actually doing is we're diminishing the capabilities of others because we're not giving them those opportunities to lead. We're suffering through something we see as a chore when a partner would see it as a blessing and an opportunity and would do it naturally. Okay, so looking for talent everywhere, finding people's native genius, and then utilizing people at their fullest, right, and 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 shining a light on them. We've sort of talked about that. Yeah, I think there's one little piece that um, this time as I read the book really stood out to me. It's this idea that, you know, sometimes we think, okay, as a multiplier, I'm the, you know, benevolent leader here that's going to shine a spotlight and pat someone on the back and say, add a girl or add a boy. Yeah. That's not a bad thing, but there's a real practical element to shining the spotlight too. And if you think about it, when you label someone's native genius, you shine the spotlight, you make it public that this person is good at this. Mm -hmm. Not only do they feel good, which is great, it streamlines the process of people accessing their genius. So if someone, if everyone knows, hey, you know, this person's great at this and this person's happy to help at this, all of a sudden the leader takes himself out of, you know, being the bottleneck. And all sorts of learning and development and result getting can happen without the leader having to be the hub that everything goes through. And that's where I think multiplication really comes in. It's not just about, and none of this is about making people feel good or being polite. It's about doing more with less, like you said, when we started. It's about getting results because it matters what we do. We've got to get results for our our people that we're taking care of. Yeah, it's, I again, I, I always think back to when people have done that for me. And, and even highlighting it and uh, things that I never recognized were talents. You know, I think I'd probably be doing such different things in my life right now if people hadn't said, have you ever thought about this? Or do you recognize that you're good at this? And, and, uh, and, and that's always been really helpful. So, so there's, there's a fourth one that I want to talk about, and it's, it's, it's removing the blockers. That, and I think this is sort of an important one. Do you have anything to talk about as far as remove, how a multiplier removes the blockers? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, different aspects to this. Um, there's a, a famous quote from Good to Great that comes to mind. It's on page 56, and it says, Letting the wrong people hang around is unfair to all the right people, as they inevitably find themselves compensating for the inadequacies of the wrong people. Mm -hmm. 
Worse, it can drive away the best people because strong performers are intrinsically motivated by performance. And when they see their efforts impeded by carrying this extra weight, they eventually become frustrated. You know, in, in multipliers, it's kind of stated the opposite way. They, they talk about a CEO who basically says, look, if you have A players on your team, that attracts other A players. Their smarts and their passion make other smart, passionate people want to work on the same team. And that's the, the, you know, we hang on to other people because we desperately need them, not realizing that those people that we're hanging on to that we know we shouldn't are driving away our A players which are then causing us to not attract more A players. And just there's that detrimental of the effect of, of hanging on to the wrong people. It's a people. vicious cycle, right? And then pretty soon yeah. all you have is the wrong people because they're the only ones who'll stick around. And I, I think, so that's, that's one way of just making sure if you have incompetent or people that aren't interested in, in doing a good job, we, you know, we can't keep them around. Like I've said before, I don't think any of us are a perfect right person. We all need leadership and help from people. I'm grateful for those that have helped me. But at some point, we have to do what good to great says and just make the decision if they're not the right person. We need those people off the bus. Um, the second thing that she talks about in the book um, is this idea of sometimes you have prima donnas. They may be very competent. They may be your best technical employees. They may be kind of the geniuses of the group. Kind of like Connor. Connor's a prima donna, right? You can keep going. So I, I, I that was <laughs> Connor's in our room today. That was me Vanessa, pleading the Fifth so. Amendment right there, because I, because Connor helps me with a lot of stuff, so <laughs> I need him on my side. But um, this idea of prima donnas is basically, um, I mean, they illustrate it great with this uh, story. They talk about there's this energy company, and there's uh, they're trying to create something that's never been created before. It's a, it's a technology, and they have these very technically sound expert people that they have to have, and there's not a lot of these scientists that can do the job. And so this leader had assembled this team of the smartest, most amazing scientists in the world. And there was this one particular scientist named Stefan, who was the key to this project. And they had a tight time frame. The problem was Stefan could not work with the other people. He was a prima donna. Stefan, you know, had to be all about him. He had to get all the praise. And he was a victim to his other teammates, probably. Yeah. Right? And he, and he yeah. just made it miserable for everybody. Yeah. But then this leader was thinking, how in the world am I going to get this timeline without Stefan? But so, so, so the leader did something that I think is key. When we think we have the wrong person or we have a prima donna, we owe them the respect of talking to them, you know, as a adult and as a, a potential partner and see if we can pull that you know, genius and get rid of the multiply or sorry, the, the prima donna in them and, yeah. and help them become successful. And, and in that case, the leader did that. But, you know, Stefan basically said, forget it. It's my way or the highway. And at that point, this leader did something that actually makes my skin, uh, you know, crawl a little bit because, you know, just a few weeks before this huge project was due and everything had to be done. He told the prima donna, Stefan, you know what, if that's your approach, we don't want you on our team. I'm sorry. You can't be part of this team. And by removing that prima donna, um, the CEO then had to walk back into the rest of his team who was relying on Stefan to get to their finish line. And I love, I love how the story goes. He basically says, look, I know I've put us at significant risk by letting Stefan go. But I also know, I believe in you guys. I know we can overcome this as a team. But there I know, I, I, I recognize there's going to be some delays. This is going to throw us off course. And it was interesting, his team members came back to him a few minutes later and basically said, look, there's not going to be any delays. We're going to do things we've never done before to make sure that this project gets across the finish line and it gets done right. So genius steps up and fills the vacuum that is being left. By creating a culture yeah. where everyone's genius can come to the top by removing a prima donna that's suppressing it, this leader was able to accomplish a better outcome with a team that could then go on and tackle more and more problems together because this prima donna wasn't holding them I, back. I know every leader listening right now uh, has empathizes with this experience, right? Of of clinging to somebody that, whose genius they needed, despite the fact that their culture was wrong and detrimental, but they just didn't have the courage to to remove the blocker. She's the best MDS in the whole market. Like no one can do the MDS yeah, like she does. Or right. this guy, this marketer knows everybody. He is in all the hospitals. The case managers love him. He mistreats everybody at our facility. Yeah. And, you know, he's a bit of a prima donna, but man, he is the best. I can't live without him. Yeah, These are real life, hard problems, hard challenges to deal with. And yeah. I, I agree. I think all of us have dealt with that. So, so what about, let's, let's go to the second part of that. What, 
What about when we're unintentionally the blocker? Yeah, that's the that's the humbling part of this is sometimes the blocker is us. And there's a couple of things that we can do. First of all, just recognizing that, you know, we can be the blocker, looking in the mirror and saying, what if I'm the problem? That's an important part of it. And I think that's a theme that goes throughout all the rest of this book is, you know, looking in the mirror and recognizing we may be the problem, not the solution. Yeah. The second thing is uh, there's a quote from the book that says nothing grows under a banyan tree. Yeah. A banyan tree is a beautiful tree that produces amazing shade, so much shade that nothing can yeah. grow. And um, that's sometimes us as leaders. Yeah. So she recommends in the book, um, you know, even just just telling your teams, you know, the result is our boss, not me. Yeah. And so ignore me as much as needed to get the results we need to yeah, get. Yeah, I remember that line from the book where, where the boss was saying, hey, and from the get-go, when they hired their employees, here's, here's a, a right I'm giving you. You can ignore me as much as needed to get your job done. If I have a request from you, I, I give you permission to ignore my request. And it, it sort of it sort of leads into this next question here, right? Because because a multiplier, I'm going to use a strong word, a multiplier, or excuse me, a diminisher sometimes will act like a tyrant. And I know a tyrant sounds like a, a really strong word, but a, a tyrant is somebody that, that they have a title and they use that title. No, you will do it because I'm your boss and you need to get make this happen. And I know a lot of our leaders do use that title. They, they cut to the chase and say, here, I want to make sure you get it done sort of a diminishing it's it's the parent right that says get in the car why because i'm your father i have the title says to get into the car so the opposite of that is the multiplier that acts like a liberator so so help me differentiate a leader that is a tyrant versus one that is a, a liberator so one way to look at it is just a couple letters um liberators create intense environments where tyrants create tense environments intense meaning you know, there's a level of concentration and diligence and energy that is expected from people. So we want intense. But we don't want tense, which is just stress, anxiety, yeah. drama, worry about like, what's the boss going to think of me? And when we're thinking ab about that, that energy can't be applied to fixing problems. So differentiating what what is the boss going to think of me versus is this the right thing to do? Because, right, we, we, we don't... We don't want people that are walking around thinking, okay, well, if I do this, what's the boss going to think? If I do that, what are my partners are going to? What, what are that my partners going to think? We want people that are fighting constantly for the right thing to do, and that comes with some intensity, but it's different from tensity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, they they define it, and I've heard you say this on I think other podcasts, but they define it by talking about the old story of William Tell. William Tell, if you remember the story, it's uh, there was a tyrant who basically punished a man who stood up to him by saying, look, you have to shoot an apple off your son's head and uh, at a, a great distance. And so in that example, um, William Tell, the great archer, had to do something with really high stakes and results mattered and he had to be perfect. He was feeling intensity. He mm -hmm. was feeling the need to be his very, very best. He needed to concentrate and be diligent because his son's life depended on it. Um, his son, in that case, who had the apple on his head and was standing against a tree, <laughs> that's an example of stress. That You don't have any control over what happens. You yeah. know, you're praying that your dad can hit the mark, but other than that, you know, you're powerless. And as a, a multiplier, you're trying to create environments for people where they give their absolute best in concentration and diligence not situations where people are stressed out and staying up at night because of things that are completely out of their control. Part of that is shifting the amount of things that are in the control of the people that we work with, giving them the freedom to take ownership of things, one of our core values, giving them the freedom to make mistakes along the way without the consequences being so great that they'll never try. Intelligent risk-taking, one of our core so, values. So you've heard me in, in some of my trainings have the debate of, do you want your people to make mistakes, right? And and, and I'll, I'll ask that question and we get into these debates and, you know, my answer is no. I, I don't think I want my people to make mistakes, but I have to recognize that tendency and find a way to create a safe space for mistakes to happen, right? Uh, uh, kind of like you, talking about removing the prima donna, you're creating a space there and that space gets filled by the genius of, of others around them. What, what can you talk to us? What can you tell us about, about creating space? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways I think that we can create space. One of them is, um, you know, there's almost a zero-sum gain 
element to space. For example, in a meeting, there's only, say, 60 minutes of airtime, so to speak. Space. If we as the leader are taking 55 of those minutes (laughs) talking about our ideas. Why are you looking at me when you're saying that? Because you're right across the table from me. (laughs) But I'm also looking at the mirror behind you because I have this problem. (laughs) And so, um, but use that example, right? We may have 55 minutes of ideas that we think are brilliant. But what did we create in that meeting when we talked for 55 minutes? And we we created a bunch of yes men or frustrated people, or maybe better solitaire players because they're zoned out playing solitaire while we're talking. people at the very least. Right. And uh, so one thing is just, uh, she talks about playing your chips wisely in the book. And this is a real exercise that I've tried. And it's surprising (laughs) how painful it is because I get excited in meetings. You know, I'm, I'm excited about what we do for our our work and the potential we have. And I find myself talking probably too much to create space, but she, she basically gives the example of going into a meeting. She had uh, a partner who loved to talk and talked too much. So she gave him five poker chips. Each had one said like a minute and a half. One said, you know, three minutes. One of them said 60 seconds. One said 30 seconds. One said 15 seconds. Mm. And she said, you can only play each chip once, and that's all you've got. And what happened in that meeting was this guy who had been an accidental diminisher by just talking the whole time with his ideas created space for his team. And his number one, there was a much more diverse conversation. Everyone felt like they had to fill that space and they had some amazing ideas that were far beyond what that particular leader could have done himself. Yeah. Secondly, he left the meeting with a whole lot more credibility. First of all, they liked being around him because he didn't talk the whole time. Yeah. Second of all, when he did talk, I mean, he, he only had five chips. He was playing them really carefully. And when he talked, it was meaningful. And I think people recognize that. So if you're struggling with creating space, play some chips. And I, yeah. I've actually done it and it's hard, but it's helpful in meetings. The second thing is, um, I, I found that people react kind of funny when they're like, Clay, we know you have something to say. And I, I've actually stated my intention, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm working on my listening skills. I know I need to be better at processing what you have to say. And, and I've let them know. And some of my teams have told me they're proud of me for my efforts. <laughs> well, you know, that's a good attaboy, but let me ask you this, Clay, have you felt like you've learned more in those meetings where you're listening? And I, not only have I learned more, I think the results have been better. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's one of those things where I I think I wasn't aware of this, but unintentionally, I felt like I needed to be the one that fills the void of space. My job is to come with the information. That's not my job. Well, and you're good at it. Here's the problem. As a leader, if you're filling the space, you're never going to go beyond the capacity that you have as a leader and your team won't ever. And sometimes as leaders, we're supposed to be the strategic you know, a strategic element of the teams. And if we're talking the whole time, we can't be strategic. She talks about in the book, I love this word she uses, the adjectives um, matter. Um, She says, liberators are more than just good listeners. They are ferocious listeners. So think about that for a second. Think about interactions with your team. I, I think about those with my team, with our coworkers, our friends, our family. When is the last time you were a ferocious listener? You think of when you would be, when when you feel like somebody has so much to share with you that you're just, you cannot wait to hear what they have to say. If If I have that attitude towards people, I'm going to ferociously listen to them. Yeah. And sometimes it's given to us where we, it's kind of forced on us. Like I remember when PDPM changed from rugs, we didn't know anything about it. We had some experts like Lori O'Hara and, and you know, some of our other the resources. change was going to happen. Change was coming. So I think yeah. a lot of us were sitting around the table ferociously listening, yeah. you know, trying to devour because we knew the next month, if we didn't know it, we were in big trouble. If we could create that type of appetite for listening in situations where it's not forced on us, that's where I think we'll really make progress. And Clay, I guess the, the last thing to your original question, I got a little bit off there maybe, was how do we create space? It's this idea of... Um, a leader can do it by generating these learning cycles by admitting when he or she makes a mistake. You know, if the leader is in, you know, involved. So you're saying it creates space when the leader, like, proactively points out, hey, I made a mistake over there and everybody's saying, oh, and that's okay? Like, it's okay Yeah, I mean, to if acknowledge. the leader can make mistakes and acknowledge them and... Then they can too. They can too. Yeah. And uh, there's an example, again, from Good to Great that I love. It's... Uh, it's a story of Joe Coleman, who was the CEO of a company called Philip Morris. And I guess back in 1978, the year I was born, uh, they purchased 7-Up and it didn't go well. 
And it wasn't a big deal. It didn't ruin the, the, the overall company, but it was a big black eye on Philip Morris at the time. And Joe Coleman was the leader. I mean, he had to own this or he could have blamed others. But basically his approach was he, he said, this is a quote from him in his book. He said, I will take responsibility for this bad decision. Hmm. That's creating space for his team. And then he went on to say something that I think was really a multiplier. He said, but we will all take responsibility for extracting the maximum learning from the tuition we've paid. And I think it's so important that he be, you know, and I'm sure he was, that that feeling of being genuine that, hey, I take responsibility for this. We all need to take responsibility for this. But but when they feel that sort of contrition and that understanding that, hey, I make mistakes, it's very easy for anybody to say, hey, nobody's perfect. Anybody can say that. It's when we get specific that it gets really hard. What specifically, you know, what mistakes are you specifically making or have made when we're willing to create that sp space and show that being vulnerability is safe? It's, it's amazing what you can open up. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. The leader didn't say, I made a mistake. I'm taking responsibility and let's all go make mistakes. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. Woohoo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like we can make tons of mistakes. Let's, that'll be what we do. Their yeah. culture wasn't making mistakes. Their culture was like you said earlier. It's a culture of, we're going to take risks, we're going to do things, and when we do them wrong, we're going to learn and we're never going to make that same mistake again. That's what a multiplier does. It's not, again, it's not just a, you know, unicorns and rainbow environment. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. one where mistakes have consequences, but we face them together and then we learn from them. And the reward from what we learned from that mistake makes it so it was an investment. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was Jeff Bezos that said... Uh, People won't be willing to become the next Amazon because they're not willing to make enough mistakes to get there, right? You've got to make them quickly and learn from them quickly and, and get to the point. Okay, so it, it, it almost feels like a, a multiplier, a liberator somehow needs to create an environment where people – you know, grow to love feedback. I know people say they love feedback. I don't love feedback. I appreciate feedback. I know that feedback is good for me, but I don't know that I love it. And and we need to create sort of a model where we insist on that, that feedback. Um, you know, this next one I want to talk about is something I've been accused of, and it's made me reflect on quite a bit, and it was really hard for me. Uh, and it says, a diminisher is a know-it-all. Whereas a, a multiplier is a challenger. Can you can you help me uh, understand what a challenge? I mean, we know what a know-it-all is. A know-it-all is the one that's constantly going to be speaking, and they they dominate the meetings because they have all the information, right? How do you differentiate that with a challenger? So she she has a number of steps on it, and I I have to say this is a hard one for me because as leaders we're supposed to know stuff, right? Right. That's kind of how we we sort of feel like that's our job. Well, it kind of is. You know, yeah. People look to us in some aspects to know things, but it's terrifying if we have to know everything because there's just no way. At least I can't. Maybe, uh, so she talks about um, challengers ask big questions, really big questions. Uh, challengers, she, there's three, three um, practices of a challenger. The first thing is seed the opportunity. And that's done with, uh, with asking questions in, in, in great part. Then it's laying down a challenge and then it's generating belief in what's possible. So mm. instead of saying, guys, our turnover problem is really bad and I've got the solution. This is how we're going to fix it. I, I know this will work because I did it in my last job. Um, it's maybe approaching that same thing saying, guys, instead of saying it's a problem, she says, seed the opportunity, not recognize the problem. Guys, just imagine how it could be if we could get our turnover you know, to 25% a year. Mm. Imagine the possibilities we would have on clinical programming when we're not spending all our training time on training people how to, you know, put on gloves. We could be training people how to deal with chest tubes or, you know, do this advanced, you know, cognitive rehab or whatever it is, because you're not just retraining people on the basics because we don't have turnover. Yeah. Imagine the opportunity. And once, once you see that opportunity, um, it, it, it's important to create a starting point for that. And sometimes once that starting point is there, you, you, you lay down a challenge. And that means sometimes saying, I don't know how we're going to get there. I don't know the answer to how we're going to fix our turnover problem. But I know it's our biggest opportunity. I know we can figure it out. We're going to get to the moon. Not sure how we're going to do it, but we're going to need all of your help to get there. <laughs> yeah. And then creating the structure where um, everyone works hard, uh, asks hard questions and um, fills in the blanks, you know, with each of their native genius, you know, to your moon example, each person comes forward and says, I'm really good at this, or I have an idea on this, or why don't we try this? 
And eventually the team can create solutions that will, you know, fill that opportunity and allow you to accomplish it. We see this over and over. I could name a number of buildings where this exact thing has happened with turnover. It's also happening with, you know, other issues like um, PDPM when that came out. Some buildings became amazing. Some markets became amazing at this and it was always done with the challenge approach, the challenger approach. Guys, look at this opportunity. This could be life-changing for our operations. Who's going to figure it out? This was my biggest epiphany in, in running a facility. Uh, and and I, I'll throw in this quote from Peter Drucker that's in the book. He says, the number one difference between a Nobel Prize winner and others is not IQ or work ethic, but they ask bigger questions. When I learned that it was my job of a leader not to come up with the solutions, but but to to figure out what questions we should be attacking right and what questions we should be asking that that was a real eye opener for me we we need to be willing to challenge the assumptions with with unsettling questions and and our job my job as the leader was to find the starting point like you said sort of seeding the opportunity and laying down the challenge and not the solution okay so so this i, I want to jump to this next one it, it, a, a diminisher is a decision maker while a multiplier is a debate maker I, I love, you know, you know, I love the idea of being a debate, debate maker. It almost feels like the know-it-all flows to the decision maker and the challenger flows the, to the debate maker. So I guess the question I would ask on this is, is debate inherently what we're going for or is debate a means to an end? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'd say the debate is is a means to an end. Like, it, I think the debate should be, you know, passionate pursuit of truth, void of ego. Right. We need to be looking for what is the right thing to do without worrying who comes up with the solution. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I, I just think it's sometimes we get so um, I've seen this in myself. I've seen this in others where we read books like Five Dysfunctions of a Team and we get so focused on, hey, we've got to have conflict. And we forget that conflict is a means to the end of getting results. Yeah. And, uh, the fight isn't the end. <laughs> the fight isn't the end. The fight is a, yeah. is a tool. And, and, you know, debates, great debates are not necessarily brawls, right? They can be passionate, but great debates are when everyone understands and the leader helps everyone understand why are we even having this debate? And, you know, and ultimately, you know, the leader's not trying to create artificial consensus before consensus is reached, but the leader is making sure, she's making sure that every step along the way of this debate is, is, is fully executed. Yeah. In other words, that when we do get to the end, consensus will be apparent. And when consensus is apparent because we've debated it, buy-in is not hard. Yeah, And you know, it flows really well into that book, Five Dysfunctions. And I, and I think even at times, you know, I, I don't even think necessarily our job is to find consensus. I think our job is to make sure everybody is heard, like Intel's philosophy, right? Disagree and then commit. But, but make sure everyone is heard because if we don't weigh in, we don't buy in, right? That's that's the everybody needs a chance to weigh in. For for lack of time, let me let me just uh, uh, summarize a couple of things here, Spencer, and then ask you one final question. You know, she gets into the micromanager versus the investor, right? The micromanager, I think we know what they are. They're just constantly supervising people's methods. They they drive results because of their personal involvement. Uh, they're sort of level four leaders because when they leave, everything falls apart. Like they can be successful while they're there, right? But they leave and everything falls apart. Whereas the investor gives other people ownership for the results and they invest in the success of other people. Um, you know, there's some things that really hit me from the book. Diminishers, I like this. Diminishers might have an open door policy, but they have a lot of closed door meetings with key people. Right. The, this idea that, hey, yeah, you can always come talk to me. OK, but I need to talk to my key people about the really important things. There's, there's a diminishing aspect to that. Diminishers might patronize their people and ask for their opinions. But in the end, they make the big decisions privately and then announce them. Uh, whereas and we've talked about this. Multipliers, on the other hand, are obsessed with wanting to know what their people know. Uh, I, I like how, and this goes back to the debate maker, I, I sort of like Abraham Lincoln's philosophy. Abraham Lincoln, when he became president, he set up what was considered to be a team of rivals. The people who had fought against him 
to become president, he now brought in on his team into his cabinet because he wanted people that were willing to disagree with him. And he, and he, you know, multipliers want to recruit for diverse opinions. And, and I just think that's such an important uh, aspect of it. That, that That's, I think, why I love the debate maker section so much. So, Spencer, what in, in wrapping all of this up, what, what concluding thoughts do you have as far from this book, Multipliers? I guess a, a few points. First of all, we probably should reapproach it. I'm glad we're doing a podcast on it. Um, the book has a lot of nuggets that we weren't able to cover today. I'd encourage yeah. everyone to you know, get on your Audible or, you know, open up your, your copy again and get familiar with it. It's a great book. So that's number one. Number two, I would say don't get discouraged. If you're anything like me, you can read this and you can say, I'm trying so hard and I've got so far to go to be a multiplier. But getting discouraged doesn't accomplish anything. It, you know, it, it's actually a selfish thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the selfless thing is to try harder to be a multiplier. And we all have to try at this and entropy will happen and we'll take steps backwards because we get busy or we get, you know, we return to kind of our natural tendencies, but keep trying and don't get discouraged. And then the third thing, I guess, is just recognize you have an immense possibility for good. And you also have an immense possibility to suppress and, and actually harm the teams you lead. There's a quote, again, going to good to great that I'll kind of end with. It says, it's on page 72, it says, the moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality itself being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity or worse. Hmm. We're a leadership development company. Leadership matters. And we have to make sure that we multiply And we follow these processes that we talked about today. So we're never the primary thing people are worried about. We should be worried about dignifying long-term care in the eyes of the world. We should not what Spencer thinks. Not what Spencer thinks. Please, not what Spencer thinks. Um, Not you know. We should be worried about being the employer of choice, where anyone who wants to give amazing care and have a career in healthcare can come and they can have the best career possible. Not you know what X Y Z leader thinks, and. We need to be very, very focused on not being that leader that, you know, is causing people to think about us instead of the results that we all want to get together. So, so pick one of the things that you listened to today. Don't, don't overwhelm yourself. I agree with Spencer. It can be very overwhelming when you realize all the things you're unintentionally doing. Pick one and, and work on it and, and figure out how to become more of a debate maker, how to ask better questions, how to play your poker chips. Uh, any of the things that we talked about so that we can, I think she points out in the book that a multiplier is able to get 95% capacity from their people, whereas a diminisher tends to get 48% capacity. We can double our productivity by becoming multipliers with the same number of people that we have. And it's just incredible potential. So uh, thanks, Spencer, for coming and chatting with us about this. And we'll look forward to talking to you again about uh, becoming accident or not becoming accidental diminishers. And my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.